On the night where he was betrayed, Jesus had his, his uh, most intimate people together in this room, and, and they had what, what we would call the Last Supper before Jesus was crucified. And, and he took at this moment and he girded himself, like he girded himself with a towel or some kind of an apron or something that he could use. And he literally washed the feet of his disciples. And he said, these things, you don't understand them, but these things I'm showing you, you need to do when I'm gone. That humility is incredible. And, and he said on the day when I'm going to talk about the gospel and how it operates, he said to them, take this bread which is broken. It's my body for you. That's the gospel. See, without Jesus' suffering, without take this of the, the drink, it's my blood that was shed for you. The Bible teaches us there's no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. It can't happen. It had to be done that way. So the gospel is represented metaphorically in that Last Supper. So when, whenever you take this, Jesus said, do it in remembrance of me. Remember, it's Memorial Weekend. We, we established memorials. This is a memorial that we would never forget that the body had to be broken. By his stripes, you are healed. When Jesus was done, they were done with him with the cat of nine tails. It said that he was almost not recognizable as human, that they had torn so much flesh from his body that his organs were visible on his body. And every one of those licks was for somebody. When, when you say, well, and you don't, I know, but when you say, oh, you know, I'm embarrassed to share the gospel, you just think about that person that's not going to hear it and how many whacks Jesus took so that they could be with him eternally. And think again, should I share it in my, overcome my fear and, and share the gospel so that that person at least will have made a conscious decision one way or the other. So when we do this, we do it in remembrance of Jesus. We remember that our salvation was costly. Peter said, you weren't, you weren't saved by, by perishable things like silver and gold. He didn't pick you know, cheap things. He picked very valuable things. It's like your salvation didn't come from stuff that just perishes. It came from the blood, the very precious blood of the perfect and spotless Lamb of God sacrificed for you. When you take this, you've got to remember that. It's a memorial. Amen? Okay, so then you, you peel back this little top deal. <laughs> I think if yours is indented like mine is, Shake it up. I think it means you may get a little fermentation in there. So, you know, be careful if you drive. <laughs> well, now, here we go. Okay, so this little wafer is representative of, I, I don't guess that it becomes the actual... It's trans, whatever that word is, into the body of Jesus. But it's, it's to give us something tangible to remember. As you bite down on this thing, he was busted. He was torn apart so that we might not be. Take that now in Jesus' name. You know, he said, uh, unless you drink my, eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. He, he wasn't speaking to this communion. He was speaking to his teaching, his ways, to, to um, surrendering your life to his life. I pray it all the time, Lord, I, I eat your flesh and I drink your blood. Your, your word abiding in me is the very nourishment that gives me life, that gives me 
fruitfulness that, that makes me to be like you, that I, I would imbibe myself on your flesh and your blood. Jesus, we just thank you so much that we got Bibles and we have Holy Spirit that we can do that. We thank you that without your sacrifice, without your shed blood, none of this would be possible. So we take now this from the cup, Lord, this that represents the blood of the covenant that we have with the Father in you. Okay, well, here we go. Annika or Jake, somebody. I think those are Bibles right there. Will you bring me one real quick or mom, somebody? Thank you. I need a sermon illustration. Is that a Bible? I only need one. Nope, I'm just going to wave it in the air. Thank you. All right, Caitlin, bring up the lights. Everybody that's asleep, it's time to wake up. Wakey, wakey. Before I start on the specifics, and it's going to be specific. It's going to be like, like a class with the scriptures, but it's important that, that we understand it the way that it's presented to us. And, and the Bible doesn't make it easy. It doesn't say um, the book of gospel, and then it just lays it out for you. The book of response, and it just lays it out for you. You have to read the scriptures, and you have to piece together what this means. But the place you have to first start then is, what's the authority that you're understanding, that your life is going to be submitted to? I tell a story about a family that used to go to our church, and I, and I taught about um, that God would actually, as a, as a mechanism of discipline, make a person sick. Last time I ever saw him, the wife said to me, you're wrong, God would never make anyone sick. God is our Father. I have children. I would not make my children sick. I don't care what the circumstances are. God is a good Father. If he made someone sick, that would be child abuse. I said, well, let me show you in the Scriptures. She said, I don't care. What was her authority? Her opinion, right? Her authority was her opinion. You can have your own opinion about the Gospel. You can think it is this or it is that or it is something different. But I promise you, the only authority that has any power is the authority that resides in these scriptures. I watched a video yesterday or the day before of these five young people, and they were having a, a, a very um, nice, you know, not arguing debate about uh, is homosexuality a sin? And, and the, the young man says uh, that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says clearly that that, that particular thing is a sin, and the person who didn't want to think so, turns out was a homosexual man, he said, no, no, Paul says that. So you see, he has a particular sin that he wants to be chummy with. So now, if uh, 1 Corinthians is not the inspired word of God, some of it might be, but not the part I disagree with, because the authority is my opinion, not the scriptures. So if, if your authority is going to be your opinion, not your interpretation, because that we can always work with, how we interpret but if your authority is that I will, I will authorize for my life what I agree with and not authorize what I don't agree with, then this will be a waste of your time because you won't submit to the gospel that's the gospel. Nobody will. The gospel that's the gospel is offensive to people because it demands that they understand that they're not good, that they're evil, and that they need to repent. Like, who are you to tell me that? Not anybody. I, I don't speak on my authority. I speak on the authority of the Word of God. 
Okay. I'll start in Romans chapter 5. Let me get one last thing, and then I'm going to try to go quick, quick, fast, 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 fast. I, I started this message, I mean, you know, I'm a hyperbole guy, 3,000 times. But, but there's so many scriptures. If I could speak to every scripture that speaks to the gospel that I want to talk about, I might not live that long, and I might live to be 100. So this is where I settled, but there's so much more. It's so much more richness to reinforce the things of the gospel. So I'm going to start in Romans chapter 5 and read to you verses 8 through 10, which speak to the situation of the gospel and ultimately the outcome, kind of as an overview statement. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We had spent all day on that little course of scripture. Let me just highlight some points. Remember two weeks ago, I talked about the first message on the gospel, that it's, it's about a love relationship. And God demonstrates his own love towards us. When? Once we got ourselves cleaned up and we were all holy? No, it's impossible without the gospel to get like that. While we were yet sinners, God expressed his love towards us. While we were his enemies, understand that every person who's not surrendered, humbling themselves to the gospel, is an enemy of God. They're rebellious. And whether they understand it or admit it, they hate God. Christ died for us. If Christ didn't die for us, we're all going to die the death that he died for us. And eternally, we will suffer under the wrath of God that he delivered us from. When you say, well, what happens if you're not saved? You go to hell. That's true. Ultimately, you end up in the lake of fire. That's true. But the experience of hell, the experience of the lake of fire, is the eternal wrath of God. So when you're saved, what you are saved from is the wrath of God. How he chooses to express it is the eternal lake of fire. And depending on the amount of rebellion a person expresses during his life, the amount of God's wrath that they'll eternally receive will be more or less. Before we go on, I'm going to make this statement and then I'm going to prove it to you probably next week. You have to understand the specificity of the gospel. The gospel is absolutely specific. It's not personally configurable. We don't get to share the gospel that we think somebody would respond to because we want them to respond to it. That's how we got in this mess. Gospel presenters don't feel so good if nobody responds. So we start to dumb down the gospel and we, we kind of round off the edges and, and we make it so it won't be offensive because we want someone to raise their hand because headquarters, forgive me, Denny, headquarters wants us to send in a report every week and say, how many people got born again this week? I don't send that report in. We can't dumb down the gospel. 
It's not personally configurable. It's not relative truth to whatever your situation or your need is. What you need is Jesus. Jesus is in the gospel. The gospel is specific. It's not ask Jesus into your heart, which, which may actually be an essence of what you're doing, but if your gospel is, are you ready to ask Jesus into your heart, you're just saying, hey, are you, are you ready to go to hell and not think you are? Because if the expression of the gospel is, well, I asked Jesus into my heart, I'm good, you're not. Because asking Jesus into your heart is not the gospel. Galatians chapter 1, 6 through 9. I'll, I'll revisit this next week. Paul to the church in the province of Galatia, who he presented the gospel to, who responded biblically to the gospel, who got saved, and then who are now being presented a gospel that's no gospel at all. This is Paul's writing to them. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Let me tell you, I think when the preacher stands up on the pulpit and he says, hey, are you ready to get right with God, to ask him into your heart? And he dims the lights and the soft music starts up. And he says, repeat after me. I don't think the motive is bad. But the mechanism is broken. So I'm not looking to curse somebody. But that person who would do that and then say, welcome to the kingdom of God, you're saved, is going to have a serious problem explaining themselves. And and honestly, I think many, 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 many pastors have never studied the doctrine, what's it called, soteriology. There's, there's two words that typically are translated from the Greek into the word saved or salvation. The first is sozo, which is the name of the boat. Sozo, we're bringing sozo out there. And that is a broad expression. Saved, healed, delivered. You can see your faith has made you well. Your faith has sozo. Soteria is, is more speaking to the eternal part of your salvation. That's the best that I understand it. And the doctrine of salvation is called soteriology, soteriology or something like that. Um, I don't think they've ever studied it. They've just become repeaters of, parrots of how they saw their pastor do it or their pastor's pastor do it or their youth pastor do it. But they're not taught and they don't study. And Satan has this massive deception where people are running around thinking they're okay with the Lord and they're not. So let me start with why the gospel. Why is the gospel necessary? You know this, but I want you to hear these words. And, 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 and this is, I'm going to read it how I wrote it. All of mankind, all, every single person, every person born after Adam and Eve need the gospel. All of mankind has been corrupted at conception by the sin of their father Adam and chosen to rebel against God through sin, making all of mankind unrighteous before God, and being judged for their rebellion unto the eternal wrath of God, 
as the just reward wage consequence of that rebellion against God. That's why the gospel exists. Because there is nobody who doesn't need the gospel. If a little baby is aborted two days after it's conceived, it was conceived, now that's a bad example, it was conceived in sin. God has a grace for the little baby. If a person, if a person is, it's not, it's not possible, but if you want to try to imagine a, a 25-year-old man who's never sinned, he needs the gospel because he's corrupt at his conception by the corruption that is passed down through the seed of his father, Adam. We could talk about that Thursday night. Ask me a question about that. I'll explain it to you. Romans does a good job with that. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 12 supports that. What then? Are we better than they? This is Paul speaking to the, the, the Gentiles and the Jews, the saved and the unsaved. Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. There's nobody that doesn't need the gospel. Mother Teresa, God bless her, without the gospel, she's tormented in hell today, waiting to be uh, ultimately judged and cast into the eternal lake of fire. Without the gospel, there is nobody going to be in heaven with God. Who needs the gospel? Every person that doesn't possess the sinless perfection, the literal righteousness of God himself. When somebody asks you, well, you think you're better than me, it's like, as a Christian, if you understand, your answer is, no, no, no. I understand how bad I am. And without the grace of God and the righteousness that's been imputed to me through Jesus Christ, I am worthy of hell. The righteousness, the holiness, the perfection that's required to go to heaven is the very righteousness of God. Anything less than that does not meet the standard. Here's the deception. I'm a good person. The question you might ask is, by whose standard or whose definition of goodness are you a good person? Right? Because we're not talking about your relationship with me. I, I could talk to you, and you'd say I'm a good person. And I'd say, well, prove it to me. And you could tell me some stuff, and I'd say, well, you are a good person. By my standard or culture standard. But the matter is God's standard. So the better question is, with regard to eternity and relationship with God, whose standard matters? The only one that matters, that's exactly right, J.J., the only one that matters is the standard that God has established, and that's himself. So anybody that thinks they're there scares me, because that's a person that thinks they're okay, and they're not. And once they find out they're not, like they stand to be judged, they can't fix it anymore. It's done. Why the gospel? Because all humanity is guilty of sin against God. And without the saving grace found through the gospel, they are damned to the eternal wrath of God in hell and in the lake of fire. Until a person can accept that truth, there's no sense in moving ahead. If they say, no, no, I'm a good person, you know what's happening? Either they're absolutely rebellious or the grace that's required for them to even understand the conversation is not present from God. Don't waste your time. Tell them, God bless. If you ever think different, let me know. But someone who cannot receive the fact that they're not as good as God doesn't think they need a gospel. 
That's why the gospel is offensive to people. It forces them to come to grips with the fact that they are not good by the only measure that matters. So if, if that's why the gospel, then, then what is the gospel? This is kind of the, the meat of the conversation. The gospel is good news. It's, I'm sorry I'm reading so much, but, but I want to make sure I get the words right. God's gracious solution to mankind's unrighteousness. The gospel is God's gracious, gracious because he doesn't have to do it, solution to mankind's unrighteousness. God's offer to any person that would desire to enter into a love relationship with him is the gospel. Having their sin debt paid and being declared righteous before him eternally. That's the gospel. Romans 1, 16 and 17 says, For I, Paul speaking, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. The power of God for salvation is in the gospel. Paul says not in any gospel, only the gospel that is the gospel. Having the power to restore the righteousness of God to a person. But it's conditional to everyone who believes. The gospel is offered by God's grace, and it's empowered, excuse me, empowered, engaged, and applied to an individual by faith. So the gospel exists for all of mankind, but only those that respond to the gospel by faith actually get its benefit, right? The easy story is, um, I got a headache. Teresa gives me some ibuprofen. I walk around with them in my hand for two hours. She says, hey, how's your headache? I'm like, it's killing me. Well, what'd you do with the ibuprofen I gave you? I got them right there. I didn't apply them in the way that you apply. I could have held them against my head. I don't know if this stuff works, hon. Still got a headache. Got them right up there by the pain. No, no. You apply the ibuprofen through your mouth with a little glass of water, and then it satisfies and solves the problem of the pain. The gospel is the same way. It's out there for everybody. You can put it to them, and they can choose not to respond to it, and they will continue to have the problem that they had when you started. It must be applied. This, this course of Scripture kind of speaks to those previous two Scriptures kind of sum, summarily. Let's look at that. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead means you were, you were under the wrath of God. You were already judged. In which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so, in, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's important to understand that, that it's not of works. I talked to a guy, shared the gospel with him, 
been praying for years for this guy's salvation. And he said, it's okay, I'm good. When I stand before God, he's going to look at my track record and he's going to approve of me. I said, he is not going to approve of you because your track record is not equal to his holiness and his perfection. He will, he will only have to take one-tenth of one second and show you that you weren't good. You can only be righteous by the imputed righteousness that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's it. He didn't, he didn't believe me. I'm still praying for that guy. See, without the gospel, a person is dead in our trespasses and sin. Dead to God eternally. Dead meaning under the wrath of God. Walking, living our lives according to Satan, the prince of the power of the air. That, that's what it is when you're not saved. Without the gospel, that's your daddy. According to the lusts of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, by nature children of wrath, sons and daughters of disobedience. That's every human being. They, they don't want to hear that. And, and you can decide how you present it to them, but that's the truth if the scripture is your authority. After responding to the gospel, alive together with Christ, raised up with Christ, seated in heavenly places with Christ, so that he might show us the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in he, God, in Christ Jesus. How did that happen? By grace you have been saved through faith. That's how it happened. By grace. Grace. Grace is God's graciousness to offer salvation, reconciliation, redemption, righteousness to us. It's by grace. Grace in that context means that he has no obligation to offer it to us. It's gracious. He's chosen to offer it to us by his grace. By his grace, we are saved through faith. What's faith? How a person responds to the gospel, how a person responds to God's gospel grace that then appropriates this grace to the individual resulting in their salvation, their reconciliation to God, their redemption, their ultimate having the righteousness of God himself in themselves. Faith. So to summarize, what is the gospel? The gospel is the power of God and the salvation for those who believe. A gift of grace from God for righteousness, not possible for a person to achieve in their own personal merit. That's really important to understand. We cannot, by our own merit, by our own works, use whatever term you want, be righteous before God. It is not possible. Salvation is not automatic. Let's speak to that. No, it's good. You know, Jesus died, so I'll go to heaven. No, no, no. No, Jesus died, so you can go to heaven. Jesus' death doesn't put you in heaven. That's grace. Faith has to be applied to that grace. Deception again. I'm okay because Jesus died for my sins. Or this one. Have you heard this one before? God loves me. He wouldn't. If he's a loving God, he wouldn't, right? He is a loving God, and he would damn you eternally because of your rebellion and your hatred towards him. I don't hate him. I love him. No, you don't. If the scripture is your authority. I'm going to heaven. I'm a good person. Salvation is not automatic. Matthew 7, 13 and 14 Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow. Get a Margietta, girl. And the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Wide gate, 
destruction, many. Narrow gate, small, few. What, what is the narrow gate? I've, I've wrestled with this for years. Like, I don't want to preach on the narrow gate because I can't really def- describe it right. Here's the answer. The narrow gate is Jesus. That's it. Now, you take everything that Jesus says, all the things that are taught about salvation, and you wrap that into Jesus as the narrow gate. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, that day of judgment, he's speaking of, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Elsewhere in the scriptures, it says, lawlessness is sin. So don't be deceived that this is something different than sin. Lawlessness is sin. You think about someone, if we knew someone who prophesies in the name of Jesus, like truly prophesies, casts out demons in the name of Jesus, and performs many miracles, man, we'd make them an elder. We, we would put them in charge of something because of their works. And Jesus says, that's interesting. I, I'm not going to dispute your resume at all, but you don't get to come to heaven because you're not one who does the works of my Father in heaven. We say, well, wait a minute. I thought salvation wasn't about works. How do you reconcile that? Who does the will of my Father in heaven? Here's how you reconcile it. You do the will of the Father in heaven because you're saved, not to become saved. You can't do the will of the Father in heaven without being saved. When you become saved, and we'll talk about this in one of the subsequent messages, you are changed. And and in that transformation, you can't not do the will of the Father in heaven. So when he says that you don't get to go because you don't do the will of the Father, the answer isn't, okay, show me a list of what that will is and I'll start doing it. No, no. That's the sign. It's the indication of whether or not you are saved. Only those who respond to the gospel are saved. Doing the will of the Father is not the way to salvation, but the fruit of salvation. And as Jesus himself said, hell is going to be way more full than heaven is. Way more full than heaven is. My, my aunt said to me one time before she passed away, I mean, not imminently before she passed away, Patrick, do you think that everybody will go to heaven? I said, Aunt Emily, no. Most people will not go to heaven. Well, Patrick, I just don't think that's true. I said, well, Aunt Emily, you can think whatever you want, but that is true. No. God's not like that. Do you see the deception? No, God is like that. He's a wrathful God. It was his pleasure to pour that wrath on his son. Russell, that went down in your mind. But if this is your authority, then it's true. I don't know where Aunt Emily is, but she had a doctrine about the niceness of God. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> so, so okay, sorry, Dory Trail owner already late. So my mom died, and then Aunt Emily died. They were both cremated. We went to Cincinnati to to close out Aunt Emily's affairs. My brother's family, our family, my mom's ashes, Aunt Emily's ashes. Aunt Emily always wanted to be buried next to her parents in the cemetery. We went to Wheelersburg, Ohio. I mean, I've been to Wheelersburg once, like 20 years before for my grandpa's funeral. My brother and I are going to be good, you know, good nephews, and we're going to spread those ashes on grandma and grandpa's graves. Except we can't find them. 
I think maybe there's another cemetery. This doesn't seem like the cemetery. So we go to a gas station. They're like, yeah, there's two cemeteries in Wheelersburg. They sent us to the other one. My brother and I were like, this seems like the right one. We're looking and looking and looking to try to find Grandma and Grandpa's graves. And all the while, the sky is getting black and swirly, and the wind is blowing, and thunder and lightning. And I'm like, Jamie, man, it's dangerous out here. My brother is Jamie. He's got my mom. I got Aunt Emily. There's his car, and there's our car. I say, what do you think, Jamie? Before we get struck by lightning, why don't we just toss him in the air? Something's got to land near Grandma and Grandpa, and we can get out of here. He's like, okay. Wouldn't you know, I take the top off of Aunt Emily's thing, whoosh, right as the wind blows. And, and honestly, I'm telling you the truth, I've got a mouthful of Aunt Emily. I can't scrape my tongue hard enough to get Aunt Emily out of my mouth. I'm spitting and gagging. We're getting soaked in the rain. Jamie runs to his car. I run to my car. I think my wife is going to die in the sea. You hit Aunt Emily. I saw you hit Aunt Emily. I'm like, So when I hear her chuckling over there and I say, stop it, now you know the rest of the story. I actually got a mouthful of Aunt Emily. Man, that was nasty. Okay, so remember, here's to you. It's illegal to do that, by the way, so don't do things that are illegal. But if you're going to throw somebody into the wind, make sure it's downwind. (laughs) Man, I don't want to hear that. (laughs) Okay. So so if if the response to the gospel, look at how I switch gears. I'm just like a pro. About to go out to pasture. Pasture. If the only response to the grace of God is faith, then what, what is faith? Because faith is expressed in a lot of ways, right? By your faith, you were healed. You know, you, you applied faith, somebody prayed, you got healed. That faith, but that's not saving faith. Saving faith is specific. So what is saving faith? Jesus said this in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now after John, speaking of John the Baptist, now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So see, there, right there, there's the simplicity of the response to the gospel. That's not the gospel. That's how you respond to the gospel. Three words, two words that matter. Ready? Repent and believe. Not repent or believe, not believe, not believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved in the context of our understanding of what it means to believe. Repent and believe. So if you think, ah, it's too much, it's too much, just remember that. When you remember repent and believe, the gospel part's easy. The Jesus died for our sins part is easy. Everybody has a good sense for that. It's the response that we struggle with. Repent and believe. So then let's define repent and believe. Wait, wait, one more, one more verse before we do that. Acts chapter 20 and verse 21. And, and it's important that you understand that you can go in the Bible and you can find something that will tell you less than this. You can find, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay. So then the question I would say is, how do you call on the name of the Lord? Like, do you do it in English? Maybe he likes French better. Probably ought to be Greek. Maybe Aramaic would be good. What would, what would be the words that you would use? Lord, I'm calling on your name so I can be saved. Phew, thank goodness. No, you didn't call on the name of the Lord. 
That's a summary statement for the verses that come directly before it that explain how you call in the name of the Lord. But people take a verse and they say, no, no, that's what the Bible says. And then they, then they go tell people that. And people say, okay. And they don't get saved. Why? Because only the gospel has the power of God unto salvation. Paul, in Acts chapter 20 and 21, he's, he's called the elders of the, the church at Ephesus where he spent so much time discipling. And he's called the elders to him because he's about to go to Jerusalem and he knows he ain't coming back. Here's what he says to them. You, you, you could read it in context. You'd get it better. But he's speaking to his own ministry, saying, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. To possess saving faith is to repent and believe. That's the foundation right there. Hold on to that. The rest will come to you. All right, but we have to define it. So, so let me do this. And, and this came from, of all places, I'm telling you, the first thing that comes up, if you said, Pat, articulate repentance, I think I could do it. I think I could do it biblically. But I don't think I would do it great. So I went to the Internet to say, hey, is there some place that I can get that really does a concise, good job of defining repentance? First thing that came up is Wikipedia. I'm telling you, I never use Wikipedia. I don't trust them. I don't know who they are. I go looking for some ministry that I trust and recognize and see what they have to say. And, and if it works, then, you know, then I would use it. Best definition I've ever seen came from Wikipedia. If you go to Wikipedia and look this up, you have to stop where I stop because it stops being good as they continue on. But that, up to that point is an excellent definition of repentance. I'm going to read it for you, and I have it up there. Okay. Got to give credit where credit's due. I don't know who the Wikipedia guy is, but he got this one right. Think of this. When you say repent and believe, and you're, and you're trying to understand what repentance is, here you go. The doctrine of repentance as taught in the Bible is a call to persons to make a radical turn from one way of life to another. The repentance called for throughout the Bible is a summons to a personal, absolute, and ultimate, unconditional surrender to God as sovereign. You know why I like Denny's message from last week? He didn't pet anybody's monsters. He, he, didn't, he didn't try to cuddle or coddle. He didn't try to make things okay that aren't okay. He said, this is your calling. And he stood there. And you can like it or you can not like it, but that's the truth. That's the truth. And that's what the, the, the repentance that's called for is. It's that. Absolute and ultimate, unconditional surrender to God as sovereign. Though it includes sorrow and regret, it is more than that. It is a call to conversion from self-love, self-trust, and self-assertion to obedient trust and self-commitment to now live for God and his purposes. It is a change of mind. People will tell you that. Hey, no, no, to repent is just change your mind. Well, if your behavior doesn't follow the change in your mind, guess what? You didn't change your mind. Sorry. Right. It is a change of mind that involves a conscious turning away from wrong actions, attitudes, and thoughts that conflict with a godly lifestyle and biblical commands and an intentional turning toward that which the Bible says pleases God. This is my own little addition, scriptural authority. In repenting, one makes a complete change of direction, 180-degree turn toward God. 
The words repent, repentance, and repented are mentioned over 100 times in the Bible. Now, all that said, the, the thing that the person's going to think is, well, there's no hope for me because I can't do that. That's impossible. I could never live that life. And you know what? That's true. But God doesn't measure your, be- your behavior or your performance. He measures your heart. You really need to understand this. It's not an excuse to live any way, but it's, it's, it's that God, in his grace, is looking for you to repent. He says, Pat Brady, if you'll repent and place your faithful trust in my son and what he did for you, then I will regenerate you. I will, I will call you righteous and reconcile you to myself. Well, what does repentance look like? Well, Pat, it looks like that thing you just read. Well, I might as well just not even bother because I could never live like that. I honestly think you probably could, but you won't, the Bible says. You won't. So then what is it that he's looking for? He's looking to not be mocked by my confession. Sure, God, yeah, you bet, I'll repent, and then I'll just go do what I want. Guess what? There was no repentance in my heart. But if that repentance from my lips is reflected by a repentant life that maybe I screwed up, that's all God looks at. When I goof up like I had to make right, remember I had to repent for not trusting God, for all of this stuff that's going on and, and looking at the storm and not looking at the promises and all that stuff, I failed at repentance. He said, repent. I repented. I apologized. I confessed. And guess what he did? He cleansed me of all unrighteousness. It's gone. And by grace, if I'll trust him, I won't have that problem again. And he's placed trees in my life to help me with it. Proverbs 17.3. There's a bunch of scriptures that, that speak to this. But you have to understand that, that God is not looking for you to make a mistake so he can whack you with a stick. He's looking to your heart. That tells who you are. That's why the guys that didn't get into heaven with all those great works didn't get into heaven. Because there was no repentance in their hearts. They were doing things to be good, instead of doing things from good. Proverbs 17.3, the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold. Think of that in terms of my unrighteousness. And I, I express some unrighteousness. And, and practically, it might be true as God is, is refining me into the likeness of the Lord Jesus, but it's not a, it's not a, uh, a beat-me-up refining process, right? If you want your gold to be more pure, you stick it in the fire and you let it cook. Silver, you let it cook. You let the dross come to the top and you scrape it off and you continue to do that process. The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. Did it work or didn't it work? Well, it's what's going on in your heart. God tests the heart. If there's tons of dross, but the heart is good, God knows. Oh, the, 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 here's a good example. We had a, a home group at our house for years when we were at the Freedom Center. And um, there was a couple that was there the whole time with us. The lady worked for a lady whose life was a total mess. She said, you know, the lady would never go with her to church. So she said, well, just come to the, to the house group with us. Finally, I mean, after years of trying to get her to come, the lady came. And we're sitting in our living room. No conversation, anything to do with this. And all of a sudden, she never said a word. I mean, she just sat in that chair like, she started yelling, 
You want me to be a Christian. I know it. You're trying to get me to be a Christian, but I don't want to be a Christian. <coughs> because if I'm a Christian, you're going to tell me I can't have my cigarettes, and I need my cigarettes. I mean, just boom, out of no place. And the, the guy that he had a great relationship with the Lord. He waited a second. He looked at her. I forget what her name was. He's like, hey, smoke a cigarette. Smoke a pack. Smoke two cartons a day if you want to. It's okay. Just seek Jesus. I thought it's the most brilliant thing I've ever heard. Because the cigarettes were not her issue. Jesus was her issue. If she would just seek Jesus, maybe she's like, no, you're going to tell me I can't be a lesbian and I'm married to my girlfriend. You've got to tell me I can't be a liar, but the only way I survive is by telling lies. It's like, hey, tell lies. Be a lesbian. Do what you want. Just seek Jesus. Because in the finding of Jesus... The lesbian's going to take care of itself. The cigarette's going to take care of itself. Why? Because God's not interested in that behavior like he's interested in your heart. And if you actually gave him your heart, he's going to know it. And you're going to confess to him, not because he's going to beat the crap out of you, but because you love him and he loves you. And that's how life becomes. So it's not about, I can't do it because I could never be perfect. It's like, okay, don't be perfect. Seek Jesus. And in the seeking of Jesus, your heart becomes pure. And in the purity of your heart, that's what God's looking for. Because then he can work from the inside out. Amen? Amen. Turn that clock where I can't see it, please. All three bullets we don't have to talk about now. Here, here's what I think may be the ultimate, you know, when you think in terms of repentance. Like, what's that look like? Luke chapter 9, 23 through 25. And he, Jesus, was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever wishes or whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? If you start out with that mindset, you're good to go. If somebody will take the mindset of repentance is that my life doesn't exist anymore, Jesus' life exists, I live only according to him, there's a good chance that person's actually repentant. But to tell them, well, you know, God understands, there's grace, and all that kind of stuff, is like, no, don't set them up for failure. Tell them, what does God want of you? Everything. All of it. I can't do it. Oh, yeah, you can. God will see that it's okay. He wants your heart. Okay. No salvation apart from repentance. I think this is going to have to be two sermons. When your own daughter walks out and the guy you thought was okay for her and you now, and you now question whether or not that's true, it must be that time. So let me just finish with this thought. And we'll talk about what does it mean to believe next week. The Bible says that at the proper time, Jesus was sent. Like a week before was not the right time. A month later wasn't the right time. There was a proper time. And, and in the Old Testament, um, I think in Malachi, maybe in Isaiah, it speaks of this one who would be crying out in the wilderness Prepare the way for the Lord. They said to John the Baptist, who are you? Are you the Christ? You know, are, you, are you Elijah? He says, no, 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 I'm one crying out in the wilderness. Prepare 
the way of the Lord. So before the right time could be the right time, the one who would prepare, like, hey, um, I'm going to go over here and there's a blizzard and, and my car has bald tires and whatnot. For me to get from here to here, somebody has to make that road clear. It has to be plowed and salted so that my car can get from here to here. For the Messiah to come without the way being made would have been that there would have been nobody for the Messiah to come to. It couldn't be the right time. So there was this one who was prophesied. We know who he was. He was John the Baptist. And his assignment, his anointing, him being Gale in the Holy Spirit, just like you said, from before his birth, was to prepare the way of the Lord. What, it, what was the process? What was the snowplow that he used to prepare the way of the Lord? Repentance. Repentance, right. Without repentance, there is no way for the Lord. Not in the grand scheme of him coming, right? John the Baptist had to make a way for the Lord. In order to make that way, there had to be a repentant people who would confess their sins and be baptized in a baptism of repentance that they might be ready for the coming of the Lord. For us... We cannot be ready, we cannot be okay, the Lord will not come unless the way has been made for him in repentance. Okay, so we stop now right there at repentance. Yes, ma'am. Did somebody call me? Huh? Thank you. Yep, so is the next part, but you don't get that till later. Now, <clears throat> maybe close to two years ago, I knew that the Lord was calling me and Therese to something different. And um, Jesus said, you know, who, are, who is my mother and who are my brothers and who are my sisters? And, and my mother could be my brother, mother and my brother could be my brother if they do the will of God. Jesus said, who are they? They're the people who do the will of my Father in heaven, right? So, so you guys are my family. You are. You're my most intimate family. I love you so much, I can't even begin to tell you Although I'm probably going to cry a little bit in the next few weeks, and you'll get a sense for it. But I needed to tell you, me and Teresa are leaving. I mean, it's not going to be for a while yet. And I had some counsel that said, don't tell them. You know? I said, I can't not tell them. If somebody would find out that I knew and I didn't tell them, then how could they feel intimate or trusting towards me? I'd rather have you trust me and go to a different church because you don't want to invest yourself in a guy who's not going to stick around than have me try to... Be sneaky quiet about it and hope you don't find out. Um, my plan, my, my thoughts, I, you know, I don't know if they're from God or not, was that, that we would have identified, you know, not everybody we. I'm, I'm not a big committee guy. Um, not everybody we, but, but I would know who God picked to replace me and Teresa by the end of February. And then at March 1st, I would make an announcement. And during the course of March, April, May, I would decrease. He would increase, kind of like John the Baptist and Jesus. And then a couple weeks after June 1st, somebody would go, Hey, I haven't seen Pat and Teresa. Do they still go here? Because we wouldn't still go here. But the process of transition would have been so perfectly done that nobody would care and i'm just telling you right now i've been praying for over a year before i had any idea who this is going to be 
that God would exalt them so superior to me as a pastor that he would have squeezed from me everything that he had to give you guys. And when he was done with me, which, you know, I figured he was, that 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 person would be so superior gifted to me that you would be raised up to such a place of elevation in the Lord that your fruitfulness and your effectiveness and your love for one another would be great. And that's the prayer you need to pray. It's not a prayer about, am I going to like this one or am I going to like him or this or that? It's like, no, no, no. Because I believe in my heart that God made a decision. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. Um, I'm telling you all this to tell you that uh, the 27th of June will be my last Sunday on the pulpit. So that's four weeks after today. I'll tell you what, the new guy can have this church before the 27th of June by peeling my cold, dead fingers from it. (laughs) Because I have a responsibility before God until it becomes somebody else's responsibility. And I'm telling you, I am taking it seriously. That'll be it. That'll be the last Sunday you know, maybe we'll be back in town and somebody will give us, you know, a gracious invite or something, but it doesn't matter because I won't be the pastor here anymore. God will have moved me on and will have moved somebody else in and that will be righteous and true and good. I don't have a speech, but I, f- I feel like, I don't know what was the right thing to do because I, I thought by March 1st this would have been all nice and subtle. I was even here on March 1st. I wasn't here in January. I wasn't here in February. It was just... I mean, I mean, God, I know all things good, right? But for me, it was a personally, it was a nightmare. And then I said, I'm coming home, I'm preaching on Easter, and I got COVID and couldn't preach on Easter. So I don't know if this was done the perfectly right way, but I know the motivation of the heart was, God, you show us who you pick. Amen. And we had a prophecy. Didn't even know it was a prophecy because that person wasn't even involved in the conversation, but they were involved with a person who was involved in the conversation. They said, you know, here's what God says. It's not going to be who you think, and they're not going to be from in this church. I was hell-bent on it was going to be somebody from this church. Matter of fact, the person I picked is with Jesus right now. And he was seemed to me like he was coming around. <laughs> but God knew what he was doing. Maybe that guy was, was supposed to, I don't, I don't even know. Who cares, right? I mean, that's behind us. That water's under the bridge. Now, I wanted to tell you this, but I think it's probably the worst-kept secret ever You may already know, but I believe with all my heart that the Father has chosen Denny and Mindy Thibault to be the new pastors of Church on Street. And we'll... And we'll talk some more about this, you know, maybe on the 27th. I'll just hit like five boxes of Kleenex right here and we'll talk some more about it. But he's been giving me signs. He's been giving me signs. Now, the sermon uh, from last Sunday wasn't up on the Internet until Friday. So, I don't know, at the, at the gas station we downloaded it or something and listened to it. And, and the Lord has been giving me signs. And I mentioned this earlier. I want to mention it again. Um, I'll say Denny, but Denny and Mindy, you know, it's a sweet package deal. I, I told Mindy it's a secret. Denny can't hear me right now because in the spirit he's being deafened. But I'm super, I'm, I'm super excited about Denny, but I whispered in Mindy's ear, I'm more excited about you. <laughs> Different giftings, but one big gift to the body of Christ. But man, when she gets up here and she was speaking over Caleb, man, you were getting serious high-end 
from heaven. That wasn't, that wasn't some little baby Christian who thought they had an idea, but they actually ate pepperoni pizza at 3 in the morning. You were hearing the voice of the Lord. The gifting is amazing. So, so the thing that the Lord showed me from last Sunday's message is this. They've studied to show themselves approved. And, and you, you say, well, what about this? You know, can a guy preach? Will he do the scripture? La, 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 la. I say, does he love Jesus? I told my daughters, you need to let me pick your husbands. Seriously, you need to let me. Well, you can't. I said, no, 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 you'll screw it up. If you let me pick them, I promise you, you have good husbands. You can pick taller, short, fat, skinny, long hair, short hair, funny, stoic. I don't care about any of that. I just, I have one quality. They need to love Jesus. I mean, they need to love Jesus, right? You can, you can pick everything. Bring me 50 of them that you're comfortable with. I'll pick the one because God will help me find the one that loves him. And if he loves Jesus, he's going to love you proper. Right? So what about this about Denny and Mindy? What about this about Denny and Mindy? What about that about Denny and Mindy? Here, I'll tell you what about Denny and Mindy. Gideon. One, two, three little girls. What's the one in the, in the basket right now? Pearl. A pearl of great value. Right? So you can say what you want about preaching styles. You can say what you want about... Well, he doesn't have much hair either, but he's skinny. You know, you know. <laughs> Try not to hold it against him. Right, yeah, we'll get him. We'll pump him up. He loves Jesus, and she loves Jesus. And the two of them have been picked for such a time as this. They were out there. They were big shots in Kansas City. They were all over the country, a half a million signatures. I mean, this church, this church, this church, until God said, no, no, this church. So I have confidence because they love Jesus, and I know they love Jesus not from the words of their mouth, but by the actions of their life the surrender of their life, and they love Jesus because he's more concerned with your holiness than he is about your approval. And that message last week was like, listen, <laughs> he was tipping my hand a little bit. You think you heard it now, but you're going to hear more of it. I'm thinking, well, when are they going to hear that? <laughs> Except for who knows how long. But the point is, you should feel good that God has given you somebody who is not going to tickle your itching ears, who's not going to give you what you want that isn't Jesus, who's going to hold you accountable to the truth so that you can be fruitful in God's kingdom. Amen? Amen. All right. On that, we'll stop. Father God, I thank you. I thank you. Kicking and screaming, easy or hard, you bring us to the place of your will. I thank you, Lord, that your salvation is available to anyone that would choose it. And I thank you, Lord, that you articulate it in such a manner that those who want it can have it. Help us, Lord, to understand what the gospel is and how the gospel is applied so that Jesus would be rewarded for his suffering with many, 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 many souls at the wedding banquet of the Lamb. I thank you, Lord, that you've chosen who you chose, the right people for such a time as this, to continue a good work that you said that any good work you start, you're going to finish. Well, you wouldn't walk them back to go and start them all over again, Lord. You'll take them. Everything that Teresa and I had to offer, Lord, will be exceeded by what you have in Denny and Mindy, that there won't be one person who isn't raised to a higher place of holiness, to a higher place of sacrifice and surrender by the anointing that you've placed on this couple and this family, Lord, to bring about Jesus Christ in your people. So we say thank you and we praise you. We give our thanks. We, we give our praise. We give our everything. In Jesus' name, amen.